theyeshiva.net. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're going to explore today a fascinating and intriguing and enigmatic question that comes up at the beginning of Parshas Va'era and at the conclusion of Parshas Shmois. Let's remember the context. Moshe Rabbeinu has been appointed by the Almighty to go and emancipate his people from Egyptian bondage and tyranny. Yet, even though at the onset of the mission it seemed so promising and successful, the people believed him, the people felt comforted and rejuvenated, ultimately the first stage of the mission spells disaster. As he approaches the Pharaoh together with his brother Aaron, not only does he not manage to persuade the Egyptian monarch to lessen the burden, never mind to emancipate the people even for three days, but to the contrary, the ire, the anger of the king gets flared up to the point that he increases the subjugation, the slave labor, the pressure and the tyranny over the oppressed people, to the point that Jewish police, who were appointed by the Egyptian commanders to supervise the slave labor of the Jewish people, are being beaten because they are not forcing the slaves to produce that which Pharaoh expected them to produce only after Moshe has began the mission. It is so discouraging that when the policemen leave Pare's palace after pleading with him to have mercy and not increase the burden, the burden is hard enough. And Pare says, no, you're lazy. Nirpimatim, nirpim, you're lazy. You don't want to work. And therefore you have these people, Moshe and Aaron, coming and saying, let's go slaughter and offer offerings to your God. It only means that you have to work harder. It means that you have too much time on your hands to think. It means that you have too much mental space to think idle thoughts about redemption, liberation, freedom. This is not good. You're not working hard enough. And when the policemen leave Paroi's palace and they meet Moshe and Aaron, they turn their personal agony and ire, anger towards Moshe and Aaron. And they say, may God judge you too for what you have done to us. As much as Pharaoh disliked us, now you really increased the level of hate to the point that now you are justifying for him taking a sword and ultimately murdering us all. Their target of their, of their pain is not Parai. The target of their pain is Moshe and Aaron because till Moshe appeared, there was the status quo. A horrific status quo, but the status quo. People get used to things, if you could say so. But now, you're trying to make it better and all you did is, you made it worse. Now how did Moshe feel at that moment? So we know how he feels because he told God exactly what he thinks. Vayashav Moshe, this is how Shmois ends on this note. 
Moshe turns, returns to Hashem. And he employs those very potent and quite unexpected words. Why have you afflicted so horrifically this nation? And from when I came to Pare to speak in your name, the affliction became far more evil, far more horrendous. You have never saved this nation. You have not saved this nation as you promised me. And one can feel, one could almost feel, the emotion in Moshe's words. Have you not sent me? You have not sent me. Have you not promised redemption? You have not promised redemption. But you sent me. Things started to look good. Vayamin ha'am, the Pasuk said earlier. The nation believed. They felt that after so many decades of suffering, after centuries in Egypt, at last the God of their fathers and mothers has remembered them. But yet, in reality, the situation became far more horrific. So Moshe screams, Why did you send me? Why do I have to be the culprit and the one who watches this and the one who caused this new evil, this new affliction, this new suffering? I'm the one, the ambassador, the messenger of this terrible suffering. It happened as a result of my shlichus of my mission. And it became worse, not better. Not only did it not remain as it was before, bad enough, it became worse. And Hashem responds to Poisha, the last verse in Shmois, Atasira. Now you will see. Now you will see that redemption will come and Paroi will be forced to expel Biyat Chazaka Yegar Shemayartse. Paroi will, through a strong arm, ultimately expel the people from his land. That's how Parsha Shmois ends. Moshe's outcry, Moshe's lamentation, lamentation, and Hashem says, now you will see my workings. How does Va'era begin? The conversation between Hashem and Moshe continues. The opening of the area is Vayidaber Elikim El Moshe. Elikim Hashem spoke to Moshe, Vayoimer Elov, and he said to him two words, Ani Hashem. I'm God. He already started the answer at the end of Shmois. He said, Now you will see. But the conversation continues with a new opening, with a new intro. Elikim spoke to Moshe and he says, Ani Hashem. And then comes a long presentation, a long monologue pretty long relative to the brevity of biblical text. I have appeared to Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov, employing often the name Shin Dalad Yud, the name Yudke Vovke, Shmi Yudke Vovke, has not become known to them. He continues saying that I made a covenant with them, that I will one day give them the land of Canaan. Shem continues saying, I have heard the cry of the Jewish people. The, I felt the oppression of the Egyptians. And I remember the covenant I once gave to the patriarchs, to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. 
And he elaborates on all this and then tells Moshe, and therefore, Lachain, therefore, go to the Jews and tell them in my name that I will take them out, I will extract them, I will rescue them, I will redeem them, I will retrieve them, and I will one day bring them, and I will afterwards bring them back to that land, that inheritance. I'll give them that inheritance which I once promised to Avram Mitzvah and Yaakov so many years ago, centuries ago. Finishes the monologue. Moshe gives it over to the Jewish people, but this time, Loi Shamu El Moshe. They can't hear it anymore. They can't hear Mikoitse Ruach or Meavoide Kosha. From short breath, Rashi says Koitse Ruach is breath, Ruach. Koitser is short, kitzer. Koitser is short breath and oppressive labor. They are working so hard, they can't even catch their breath. When you can't even catch your breath, you can't expect people to listen to any message. Never mind a message that is so optimistic and promising and transformative. This time, the first time he came, they believed him. This time, not only they don't believe, they don't, can't even listen. V'loy which, of course, at this point, the Torah enumerates the lineage of Moshe, and then Moshe will still go back to God and say, when Hashem tells, sends him back to Parah, and he says, the Jews won't listen, didn't listen to me, and now you want Parah to listen to me? He's certainly not listening to me. He's now Jewish. He's not listening to me. Anyway, have plugged lips. Now, This is one of the very enigmatic and difficult monologues in Chumash when you try to understand it. Is God answering Moshe's question? Is he ignoring his question, meaning not ignoring, is he not addressing the question and just addressing something else? Moshe asked the question, why did you do this? And why did you send me? And why did things get worse? So Hashem says, now you'll see, things will be good. And then he starts a whole story about, I appeared to the others and I made promises. And now it's time to fulfill the promise. And he goes back to the Jews, but they don't listen. What's the sequence of the conversation? What's the continu, continu, conti, what's the, how do we understand the continuity and the juxtaposition of his question and God's, Hashem's response? So when you look at the commentators in the Mepharshim, there's different ways, different perspectives, different interpretations. Rashi himself has one presentation. Rashi, the basic commentator of Chumash, has one presentation, how to understand the sequence of the question and the answers. And then Rashi says, this is one way of looking at it. He says, this is a tradition which I heard from a man named Rebelezer, the son of Rebaruch who said something similar to what I wrote. And then Rashi says, but Rabbi Seinu, our rabbis, gave a whole other way of understanding this entire sequence, this entire exchange between Moshe. And he goes, this is rare, that Rashi at the end of the whole, of the, of the whole conversation says, and now I'm going to tell you a whole other way of understanding Hashem's response to Moshe Rabbeinu. And then Rashi says, but I chose the first 
because it fits more the literal interpretation of, of the psukim. This medrash that I just said is not mis ena mis yashiv. Achramikri doesn't settle in well to the literal interpretation. And therefore Rashi says, let's learn it literally, but let the medrash also be expounded and taught because that is also a... Uh, an important perspective, and he finishes with this famous words that Torah is never understood in one dimension. It's like when you take a hammer and you pound a rock and it generates the unleashing, many sparks are unleashed in the mischalic lekamanitzaitzes, they go in many directions, and the same is true. Torah is fire, and the, the sparks can go in many different directions and be manifested in different ways. What is that second interpretation that Rashi quotes from the Medrash? That essentially, much of the conversation of Hashem is a response to Moshe's complaint. What is the response? God said the famous words, Chaval al da'abdin I miss the Avais. I miss Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. It's like God gets nostalgic with Moshe. He says, I once, I once had a relationship with a man named Avram. I once had a relationship with a man named Yitzchak. I had a relationship with a man named Yaakov. As we would say in America, the good old days. That's how they explain it. The good old days. Lo Yisaynanu. They, they never complained. They never complained. They didn't second guess me. They didn't question my behavior, my attributes, my motus operandum, my MO. And they give, and he gives a whole list. The Medrash gives a whole list quoted by Rashi. I promised Avram Avinu the land. I told him it's going to be yours. And then his wife passes away. And he discovers that he doesn't even own one garage in the land of Canaan. He doesn't even own a hole in the ground, pun intended. He has to negotiate with members of the tribe of Ches, the Chittai tribe, to purchase a cave. And as the commentators and Rashi explained there, that this was literally at the edge of a field in Hebron where the soil was infertile, it was extremely cheap, and that's why it was designated for burial sites, because it was not suitable for agriculture. That's why I say, a hole in the ground I did, he didn't own. And he has to negotiate, and it's not a simple negotiation until he finally convinces Ephraim to sell him the double cave, the Ma'aris HaMachvela, and he pays a very hefty price of money, Arba Meir Shekel Kesef, 400 silver shekel, a very powerful and expensive currency at the time, 400 of it in order to buy. Avram should have come to God, he tells Moshe and say, I don't know, that. This, this is called the land is mine, a place to bury his wife I know he doesn't have. He never did that. He bought the Mars Machpelah. Yitzchak digs a couple of wells. He wants to have water for himself, for his family, for his livestock, for his flock, for his herds, for his servants. And what happens? The Philistines are stealing well after well after well. Every well that he undigs, they plug, they stuff, they fill up with gravel. Yitzchak should have said, 
This is the land you've given me. I can't even own a well. I can't even have running water in my house. And the same is true. Yaakov Avinu comes to Shechem, has to buy, has to buy a piece of property. He says, they never complained. You? And now God goes back all the way to the beginning. The first time I met you, you already wanted to know what my name is. You said the Jews are going to say, what's your name? Tell me your name. So they never asked me what my name is. You wanted to know what my name is? Because Moshe asked Hashem, they're going to tell me, what's your name? I want to say, well, what am I supposed to tell them? What's your name? Then now you tell me, why are things so bad? If things were looking so good, why are they so bad? And that's why he uses the words, Rashi uses the words of the Medrash Rabbi, which is an Aramaic expression. Chaval means uh, too bad, a shame, or woe for those who are gone and they're not present. You can't find them. I miss them. I miss Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Chaval al da'avdim v'lamashtak. And this is how the Medrash understands the sequence. I appear to Avram, I appear to Yitzchak, I appear to Yaakov with the name Shindalad Yud. They never asked me for other names. I made covenants with them. I made promises to them. I told them I'm going to give them the land. And the Medrash is filling in the gaps. And despite everything that they saw to the contrary, they didn't complain, they didn't second guess, they didn't lament, they didn't ask questions. This is how the Medrash understands God's response to Moshe Rabbeinu. Rashi himself, as I told you, rejects this explanation. Not because it's inaccurate. The Medrash says it, Rashi himself says it should be said. But Rashi says it doesn't fit into the pshat. Because what's the sequence after that? God says, therefore, tell the Jewish people, I'm going to take them out of Egypt. What's the response? What's the connection? So Rashi himself does not embrace this aspect. But Rashi himself also introduces this idea that Hashem got nostalgic with Moshe earlier already. And that is the opening Rashi on the whole parsha. Because something strange happens in the beginning of the era. Moshe complains, why did you afflict the Jewish people? Hashem says, now you will see. Paroi will surrender ultimately through a strong arm. Now you would expect Va'era to continue the conversation. Even if there's an interruption and God opens up the conversation again, something strange happens. It says, Elakim el Moshe. Elakim spoke to Moshe, so now you're expecting him to say what he wants to say. love, two words, Ani Hashem. I am Hashem. And then I appear at Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. How do you explain that verse? Elakim spoke to Moshe and said, I am Hashem. Is this a response? Is it not a response? And the name of God changes in the same verse from Elikim to Yudkevavke. So Rashi says, Elikim represents a name of judgment. Diber itoy mishpat al shehiksha loimar lama harayos. Vayedaber Elikim al Moshe is, God spoke harshly, so to speak. He spoke to him about justice for his lamentation. Why have you afflicted the Jewish people? That's Vayidabri Elikim al Moshe. It's almost a self contained conversation. 
doesn't say what he said. But Dibri Toy Mishpat, there was some harsh or difficult or challenging conversation. And then Vayoimirei Love, then he changes. Ani Hashem Yutkevavke, a different name. So however you learn the entire conversation or the entire response of God, you see right away, Hashem challenges Moshe, this question, triggered a, an intense or loaded response, Rashi teaches us. Already at the end of Shmois, Rashi says something, something fascinating. When Moshe complains, God says, Atasira, now you will see. And right there, Hashem says, Oh, you're not like Avraham. Avraham Avinu, I told him, You're going to have a son, Yitzchak. And from Yitzchak, all your descendants, the Jewish nation, will grow. And then I tell him, Take your child and offer him as an offering. And he never asked questions. He never said, God, you're contradicting yourself. You told me that Yitzchak is going to produce a family. I'm going to have children and descendants from Yitzchak. And then you tell me to go slaughter him. You're contradicting yourself. That's what he should have said. He never said that. But you, you said, when I sent you to redeem the Jewish people, and instead what happens? Parai increases the burden of labor. You're coming and you're saying, why do you do this? And Rashi even brings the Medrash Atasira. Now you're going to see. You're going to see now what happens. You're not going to see what happens with the 31 kings in the land of Canaan. You won't enter into the land of Eretz Yisrael to see the defeat of the 31 kings. Atta, now you will see. Which all of this, all of this, all of the interpretations that I quoted at least briefly and generally, behoove us to ask this question. Was God really growing nostalgic and telling Moshe, I, I missed, I, I, what do they say? The altador, I missed the old generation. Is that really what was going on? Like, you had good forefathers, you had good grandfathers, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. This is not the way to do it. It's difficult to understand it this way. Why is it difficult? The Rambam describes Moshe Rabbeinu in his introduction, in his commentary on Mishnayis in Tractate Sanhedrin, his introduction to chapter 11, Perik Chelek. The Rambam describes Moshe Rabbeinu, and I quote, Nifchar minhe He reached the zenith of the human condition, meaning he embodied the most perfect, the greatest perfection of a human being. Already when he was born, it says, his mother, Yechevet, when she saw the new infant, she saw that he's good. What does it mean she saw he's good? Every baby is good. So the Gemara says in Masechah as he entered into the world, the whole home was filled with light. He wouldn't even nurse from an Egyptian woman. Why? Because as a three-month-old baby, the mouth that's going to speak to the Shechina 
wanted to remain completely pure, even at the three months old. When the Torah eulogizes, when God speaks about Moshe Rabbeinu, it says, Well, I come, Navi be Yisrael Kemoshe, she yidoi Hashem ponem al ponem. Never was there a prophet like Moshe, whom God knew face to face. Moshe speaks later to Aaron and Miriam in Baaloischa. And he says, You're prophets, but you're not compared to Moshe. Loichain avdi Moshe, bechol beisi nemanu. He is trusted in my entire home. Tmunas Hashem Yabit. He gazes at the picture of God, however you want to explain what that means. He doesn't get God through riddles. He is, his intimacy is absolute. Torah says in Parshas Kisisa, God speaks to Moshe, like a person communicates with his or her best friend. This these are terms and expressions that you'll never find earlier, you'll never find later. Not even Avram, not even Yitzchak, not even Yaakov. And yet here, it seems, and yet here it seems, that there's a whole other story going on. Moshe, so to speak, is doubting. He's asking these tough questions. It's like, God, this is really this is really wrong. What are you doing? And Hashem says, yes, you know, I miss those others. Chaval, chaval. Where are they when you need them? People who are not complaining. How are we to understand this? And this is not just a philosophical question or an interesting question, which I think it certainly is. But it's also a very relevant and vital question. Because we have another principle, which is a fascinating principle. The Gemara says in Baba Basra, 123, Kuvchav Gimel, The Torah will be careful not to display the disgrace even of an unclean animal. Meaning, respect to people and to every creature is so paramount that unless it's absolutely necessary, the Torah will be cautious to say a word that can embarrass an unclean animal. Now, these animals don't read Chumash. Nobody's throwing them out of school because they didn't get do well on their exams. They don't even know what's written about them. I mean, at least from what we know today. Maybe one day we'll find out. We'll probably find out that they know more than we think which we're already finding out a little bit, that they know a lot. Who are you embarrassing? What do they get embarrassed? There's an animal in the jungle. We don't even have a connection to those animals. We stay far away. What's the big deal? The answer is, if it's a creature in God's world, it's part of the divine symphony. And therefore, there is value, there is dignity. Toiv Hashem Lakoil, Virachamov, Alkol Masov. In Parshas Noyach, he won't use the word Behema Hatmeya, he will use the word Behema Asher Einena Tahoyri, even though it causes the Torah to be a, use excessive language. The Gemara tells us in the beginning of Psachim, page 3, because of its respect even for a non-kosher animal. This is even true with an animal, unless it's necessary. When Torah tells a story about somebody, that has, that has negative connotations or is a negative story, 
It's because it's an indispensable part of the blueprint for life. Just like in halacha, you'll often have the Torah says, this person is tummy, this person is tummy, this person is tummy. You just said that you don't want to use the word tummy by an impure animal. Over there you're talking about a story. Here you're talking about a halacha. A person has to know, if I come in contact with this and this source of impurity, I am impure. I can't eat truma. I can't eat holy offerings. I can't go into the Beis Hamikdash. I have to understand the ramifications. It's vital as part of the divine blueprint and program for Jewish life. So when there is a story about somebody that has negative connotations or is outrightly a negative story, if you're respecting an impure animal, certainly you're respecting a person. It's because this is essential to the blueprint for life that the creator of the world has given the world and the Jewish people at Matan if so, it means that the conversation of Moshe to God, if it was seen as such a negative conversation, why would the Torah even include it? It's not essential to the story. Essential to the story is that the Jews left Egypt. That's part of the story. Every conversation that Moshe had with God or with the people, some of them we know, some of them we don't know. And if this conversation is so negative, why does the Torah include it? and record it as a life lesson to us, including the response, So we're going to explore this today on two levels, from two perspectives. The first perspective is explained in the commentary of the Chassam Seifer on Chumash, based on the Medrash Rabbah, on the opening verse of Parshas Ve'era. Some Seifer says a fascinating insight. He says that Moshe knew that this is the wrong thing to say. He knew it. He knew it's not the way he should speak. It's forbidden. It's what he calls something like of a, of a sin, a transgression to speak this way. And he did it anyway. Why did he do it anyway? Says the Chsam Seifer, that Moshe Rabbeinu gave everything away for the Jewish people. Not only his body, but even his soul and his purity. So that's who Moshe was. Later, by the sin of the golden calf, God will say, oh, I'll wipe them out and start over with you. He says, no, 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 no. As we say in English, on my dead body, this is not happening. If you forgive them, good. And if not, you could delete me too. You'll wipe me out with them. Delete me. Well, I don't understand. How do you speak this way? Hashem says we have plan B. He says, no. Erase me from the book. Meaning, I'm not connected to this whole Torah thing if you don't forgive the Jewish people. And he was successful. So the Chesam Seifer says, this was Moshe Rabbeinu was. He was ready to give away not only his material self, even his spiritual relationship with God for the sake of the Jewish people, which is an extraordinary insight. And the truth is that you see it from the breaking of the luchas. Rashi says, why did he break the luchas? He broke the luchas. One of the reasons is because the luchas are like the marriage contract between God and the Jewish people. Rashi gives a whole famous metaphor in Parshas Kisisa. There was a king who married a queen. And then the king traveled, and when the king came back, the king discovered 
that there was unfaithfulness and promiscuity in the marriage. So the best friend of the king and the queen took the marriage contract, took the ksuva, and destroyed it and said, there's no evidence that you were ever married. <laughs> so Moshe took the luchas and he broke them. He said, this is the marriage, this is the marriage contract. This is like the tabas kedushin, the ring of kedushin, or the ksuva, or the shtar kedushin. Different ways of saying it, different sources. But the bottom line is, there's no evidence that there's a relationship here. And therefore, that's the expression of Chazal. She's a single woman. She's not a married woman. The Jewish people are single. They're still finding themselves. They're still searching for themselves. Now when you think about this, this is quite an intense interpretation because the luchas were given to Moshe by Hashem himself. This was a physical item that was not part of the creation. It was engraved and created by God himself. The Mishnah says in Pekayavis, yet from the first Friday of creation, Haksav v'hamichtav, God sculptured the luchas himself. It says, min ha-shamayim. So this is the most price. It's priceless, beyond priceless. And it was given to him by Hashem himself. And Moshe and Torah are one. Zichru Torah Moshe Avdi. And you have the luchas. So if you feel the Jews don't deserve it, give it back to Hashem. Hide it. Put it away under the mountain somewhere. How can you break such a thing? How do you break such a thing? Imagine 25th anniversary. You decide to buy your husband an extraordinary gift. I don't know, it cost you $25,000. You have to pawn other items to buy it because you really want to show appreciation and and love, and affection, and so forth. And then that night he comes home with one of his attitudes. Present company excluded, of course. But he comes home, and all the energy is is depleted. You know, it all gets drained, like a sewer system. You hold, the whole oomph is gone. You wanted to open a new chapter. It's It's worthless. So you have now this $25,000 gift. What do you do? You burn it. You destroy it. You put it away. Take it for yourself. Sell it on eBay. Give it back. Hide it for better times. What are you destroying it? What what are you destroying? Who even gave you permission to destroy it? Moshe, it's not your luchas. It's another question. Who gave him permission to destroy it? Ask Hashem. He doesn't ask anybody. He takes the luchas without hesitation, without deliberation, and he smashes it. Why? To save the Jewish people. Hashem tells him, I thank you for breaking the luchas. And indeed, this would explain the fact that the end of the whole Torah, Moshe passes away, the last eight verses are a eulogy. Some of the most moving verses in the Tanakh, where God, so to speak, eulogizes his servant Moshe. And he goes through the praises of Moshe's life. What are the last words of Chumash? What he did before the eyes of all the Jewish people. So Rashi says, what did he do before the eyes of all the Jewish people? He broke the tablets in front of them. 
And here one wonders, we always try to end on a positive note. Or as they say, end it on a high note. The Gemara, they just did a Siyam Hashas, the Talmud Bavli, ends out of context. The discussion is Nida and Zava. And the Talmud Bavli, the end of Nida, tractate Nida, ends out of context. So Toysvis Rashi say, to conclude Shas, to conclude the Talmud, on a positive, comforting note. And how does the Chumash Teresh HaBiksav end? One of the most catastrophic moments in Jewish history. Moshe is breaking the Luchas. And I ask you, if you had to eulogize Moshe Rabbeinu today, would this be the last thing you said? I mean, imagine somebody's eulogizing a doctor who served as a physician for 70 years, okay? So the eulogy is counting the man's or the woman's praises. And what's the end? What's the last thing? I'm going to tell you one last thing about this doctor. The other day he had a patient and he amputated both of his arms and both of his legs. Thank you very much. Even if he had to do it, why don't you talk about all the lives that he saved, all the people he didn't, he made that they, he caused them healing. They shouldn't, Khalila have to experience this. Even if Moshe had to do it, this is a low point. It's not a high point. You'd see us Mitzrayim, Kriyas, Yamsuf, Matan, Torah, the man of the clouds. That's all, you know, the small stuff. The real thing, he broke the luchs. But the truth is that this captures the love of Moshe to the Jewish people in the profoundest way. Moshe was one with Torah, and he was ready to break the luchas, the essence of Torah, to save the Jewish people. Says the Chassam Seifer, Moshe knew that you don't say Lama He did it anyway. It was a sacrifice for him, a spiritual sacrifice. It was a spiritual sacrifice, why? Because he could not tolerate the pain of the Jewish people. So he said, I'm going to do the wrong thing and I'm going to scream, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? That's what the Chesam Seifer says. And he says, look at the Pasuk, Vayidaber Eleikim El Moshe. Eleikim spoke to Moshe. What's that Eleikim? So Rashi says, Midas Hadin, Dibri Mishpat. God says, how do you say such a thing? It's not how you speak. Moshe says, I know it's not how you speak, but I'm saying it anyway. So you know what Hashem says? Ani Hashem. <laughs> You're right. It's time for the redemption. Moshe was successful again. He sacrificed himself. He knew that this is, this is not the way to speak. Ani Hashem. The Mesilas Yesharim, Rabbeinu Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the Ramchal, chapter 19, I think, has an expression. He says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Oyev Yisrael. God loves those who love the Jewish people. And if they love more, the love, he says, the love is increased far more. Somebody once asked the Balatanya, today is his yard site, which mitzvah is greater, Avas Hashem or Avas Yisrael? Which mitzvah is greater? To love God or to love the Jewish people? So he answered and he said, Avas Yisrael is a pirush of Avas Hashem. 
The mitzvah of loving a Jew is a commentary on the mitzvah of loving God. Because oyev ma shahahov oyev. When you really love somebody, then you love what the beloved one loves. Imagine somebody comes to you and says, you know, I really love you. Your children, I despise. I loathe. You, I have patience for. Your kids, don't get them close to me. How deep can you maintain, how deep of a friendship can be sustained when this is the (laughs) stipulation behind the relationship? If you, if you don't really love me, okay, but if you really, really love me, if you really love me, then you also love what I love. Even for the fact that you love me. So a Jew comes to davening and he says, Shema, closes his eyes, or closes his eyes, and says, You should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Then I leave shul, I'm going out, and I see somebody, and I'm like, you, I really don't like this guy. God says, whoa, 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 you're just screaming that you love me, how could you love me and not love my children? If you love me, if you really love me, not yourself, you love my children. So, Aves Yisrael is a pirush on Aves Hashem. So, Vayidabri Elikim El Moshe, Vayoymer love. But then he right away says, Vayoymer, it changes from Vayidaber to Vayoymer. Vayidaber is harsh, Vayoymer is soft in Hebrew grammar. Dibur is kasha, Amir is raka. And from Elikim to Yudkevavke. Yudkevavke is the name of compassion. This is the Chsam Seifer's insight. He says it in four or five lines. I just elaborated a little bit on it according to my understanding of the Chsam Seifer, which is really an elaboration of the Medrash on this Pasuk. That when Moshe said, The Midas Hadin wanted to harm him. And then says, God said, no, 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 no. He's doing this for one reason. Because he cries for my people. He cries for my children. And Moshe is successful. The next line is, I appeared to the Avos. I made a covenant. I made a promise. And now it's time to deliver the promise. And the story goes on in Ve'eram Boy about the actual redemption from Egypt. That's one dimension of understanding this. I want to explore with you now a second perspective. Not contradictory at all, but just a different perspective. As Rashi says, Actually, the exchange between Moshe and Hashem was far more profound than what meets the superficial eye. From this perspective, God was not looking at Moshe and saying, you know, do I miss Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They were good guys. You, this is just not working out with you. You have too many questions. You have too many doubts. You ask too many things. You investigate too much. Just believe and accept. Stop asking me for my names and stop complaining that things are not working out 
the way you think they should work out after my promises. At the surface, that's what it looks like. When you appreciate the entire context of who Moshe is, how the Torah describes Moshe, as we discussed before, really we have to take this and understand this from a much deeper point of view. What is actually playing itself out here is something extraordinary. Because in some total, even though Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov are the patriarchs, the Torah was given through Moshe Rabbeinu. He is considered the greatest servant of God, the greatest prophet of God, the conduit of God's will to the world. There's a famous expression in Medrash Rabbah, Avram was number one, Moshe was number seven. Kol Hashvin, Chavivin. The special love, number seven. Because you have Avram, and Yitzchak is two, and Yaakov is three, and Yaakov had a son, Levi is four, and Levi had a son. Anybody remembers? Which one? Kahas, very good, is number five. And Kahas had a son. Very good. Amram, number six, you get a hundred. And I'm very good. 110, extra credit. Amram has a son, Moshe, number seven. Yeah, so it's Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Levi, Kahas, Amram, Moshe. Number seven, Kol, Avram is the first. Kol Ashvi and Chavivin. The special Chavivus in Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe here is not doubting God in the regular understanding of the word doubt nor is God responding with the ordinary understanding of just chastising him for asking questions, but rather, on a deeper level, something completely different, actually opposite, is happening. And in order to understand this, let's remember the Medrash says, the famous Medrash says, Chazal say, B'schar ha'emunah, nigelu aveseinu memitzrayim. The Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt, Bishar, or in some places it says Bishchus, in the merit or in the reward of their amunah, of their faith. Famous Pasuk in Yirmiya, we all know, Zacharti lach chesed nuurayich, avas kluloi sayich, lechtech acharai bamidbar, beeretz leizu. I will forever remember the love of your youthfulness, the grace of your youth, the love when we just got married and you followed me into a desert, into a wilderness, into a land that's not sown, unplanted territory. One statement of our sages. Another statement of our sages comes from Medrash Rabbah, Parshas Kisisa. After the Jews built a golden calf, Moshe says to Hashem, Lama Hashem abcha Why are you angry? Why do you get so angry? Now, what type of question is this? Anybody ever asked you the question? Why you got so angry? <laughs> Why are you getting so angry? <laughs> you don't like to hear that question when you're angry, right? Does anybody like to hear that question when you're angry? <laughs> it's not the best thing for a relationship. Why are you so angry? <laughs> but that's what Maisha does to God. He's not empathetic. He's like, God, why are you angry? <laughs> What's bothering you? What's behind that conversation? We always say Medrash is the harmony for the ma- melody, right? You heard this quite a few times. So the Medrash gives us the harmony. You know, what you do with the left hand on the piano. For the pianists among you. So the Medrash says, I'll tell you what Moshe said. Moshe said to God, why are you angry? The Jews, these are the words, 
The Jews were trying to help you. God says, where are they helping me? Simple. They made a beautiful golden calf. You will, rate, you will bring the sun out, and the calf will bring the moon out. You're in charge on some of the stars, and the calf will bring up the other stars and the constellations. You will create rain, and the calf will create the winds. What do you want? They brought somebody into the company to help you out. You don't have to do everything on your own. So what the Medrash says. So Hashem tells Moshe, really? I see you're stuck in the same mistake like them. There's no substance in the calf. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. There's nothing to it. It's a dead golden calf. It's a piece of metal or a living golden calf. Ain't by mamish. It's nothing. There's nothing to it. So Moshe said, really? So why are you angry? <laughs> and God said, okay, you're right. That's what the matter says. There's nothing to do it. So why are you angry? <laughs> Smart man, Moshe. How are we supposed to understand this? Moshe made this hole. It's like this. He's going to chop God in his traps like a chavrusa. You're learning with your chavrusa. You ask these rhetorical questions. I chopped you. And he gives this whole presentation. You'll raise the sun. You'll bring out the sun. The calf will be in charge on the moon. The calf will be the winds. You'll do the rain. He'll do the snow. He'll do this weather. He'll do that weather. And then God says, wow, I see you have the same problem like them. How could you make such a mistake? I mean, what was Moshe trying to accomplish here? Did Moshe really believe suddenly that the golden calf is a god? Moshe? From all people? Moshe wasn't even there. He was on the mountain. He's the one who broke the luchas. He took the calf. He burnt it. He grinded it. He scattered it in the water. Aimed by Mamish. He's the one who revealed it has no substance. He was completely not part of the whole debacle. Suddenly the Medrash introduces a whole other dimension. But here again, you see how Moshe Rabbeinu operates. And this the Medrash was trying to bring out in a very powerful way. Moshe did not detach himself from the Jewish people. He said, they created a help for you. And God said, wow, you're just like them. That's what he needed. I'm in this with them together. We all made the same mistake. I also made the mistake. God says, how can you make such a mistake? It's ridiculous. So why are you getting angry? Which also includes the possible interpretation. You're going to forgive me? You got to forgive them? I made the mistake. You made, they, I made the mistake. They could make the mistake. And I'm smarter than them. Now, did Moshe really make this mistake? Was this a shtick? Was this a show? Was this a, just an external display? Who are you deceiving? God? God doesn't know you didn't make this mistake? What, what's really going on there? How are we to really understand this? There's a fascinating interpretation by one of the great Hasidic masters, Tzadik HaKoyen of Lublin. He passed away in 1800 in Lublin in Poland. He has a book called Tzitkas HaTzadik. 
there was a contemporary of his, known as the Holy Zidetshever, Epsviyesh of Zidetshev. Rabbi Suffren, he was, was his last name, the Rabbi, uh, Reb Chaim Leibish, right, Rattenberg Schlitter from Forche, 47 Forche, where the Hanukkah terror attack happened as a grandson. So he has a commentary on the Megillah, Kesem Oifir. And they both say the same insight. And that is, why did Moshe break the Luchas? We gave one interpretation. They give a very different interpretation. And that is, you cannot help people come out of their abyss if you don't join them. Because I can't help you come out of your quagmire if I cannot empathize with what you're going through. This is a teaching of the Balshemtiv. A lifeguard cannot save people from on top of his lifeguard throne. You remember by the beach, those thrones by the swimming pools? Sitting with his headphones. Hey, get out of the water! I have to jump in. And if somebody falls into a pit, I have to go down. To be able to extract you. Sometimes I could send a rope. Sometimes that can't be effective. You remember last year, two years ago in Thailand, those 13 boys went into a tunnel and then the tunnel was flooded and they remained stranded there for a few weeks. You couldn't scream, come out, come out of the tunnel. They had to send in a whole team of rescuers. It was a miraculous story. They got the children out. You have to go down there. Moshe Rabbeinu, in all other sins, he was there. But this time he was on top of the mountain. So there was no connection, there was no relationship. He couldn't even understand them. What, the fir- what are the first words God told Moshe after telling him that they created a golden calf? Lechreid. Go down. Literally it means geographically, go down. But it means something much deeper. You have to go down into that situation. So you can relate to them, you can understand them, you can empathize with them, and then you can extract. If not, we have no shared language. If I'm trying to help out a teenager, I'm trying to help out an adult, I'm trying to help out a child, and you come in and we have a conversation, and all I say is, oh, you're such an idiot. So if, if you're in a pretty good place and you're ready for my humor and you're already out of your mess, sometimes... It can be effective. Sometimes a person needs to hear just a sharp comment. But if the person is really in the abyss, I just severed the relationship. Okay, another idiot who thinks I'm an idiot. You and my father and my mother and my sister and my brother and my teacher. Here we go. Let me go find new friends. I have to be able to connect to you. I have to be able to feel the pulse of your heart. But this is not easy. Who wants to go feel the pulse of a heart that is beating with pain. It's not easy. It's painful. It's much easier to sit on my chair and say, stop being an idiot. But if I don't see, feel and sense your pulse, I can't help you come out of it. So Hashem tells Moshe, Lech reit, go down, go down. You have to go down. Says the Tzidka Satzadik, and this is very daring. The Gemara says in Maseches Shabbos, Kuv Dalet, Tractate Shabbos 104. Listen to this. I quote, Hashoiver Kalim Bachamosoy. Somebody who breaks vessels when they're angry. Anybody knows the end of the sentence? It's a form of idolatry. Says Reb Tzadik you know what Moshe did? 
it says he got angry and he broke the luchas. Vayicharaf Moshe and he broke the luchas. What does the Gemara say about that? Harehu In a very subtle and abstract and transcendent way, Moshe now is with them. They created a golden calf. He broke the vessels out of anger. Now he turns to God and he says, you can take me back up. We'll take everybody back up. Lechreit, he went down. He was broken with them, so to speak. Once I'm broken with you, we could now repair ourselves together. I once read a story, somebody sent me once an email. There was a fellow who, when he was young, he tattooed himself, but not just in one location. He tattooed himself almost from head to toe. Uh, not long ago, I saw somebody somewhere, and they had a big tattoo, big tattoo on their arm, and it was a picture of a girl. I said, hey, who is that? He says, my girlfriend. I said, what happens if you break up in six months? What happens? What happens? He says, oh, I didn't think of it. I said, you're a young boy. Right? Okay, this guy was tattooed. People are young. He tattooed himself almost. Ultimately, he changed his life. He returned to Yiddishkeit. And uh, he would go to the mikveh. But he would wait till everyone was out because it was, it was very uncomfortable for him. So a regular day, if you come at the right hour, it could be empty. I'm talking about men's mikvahs. But uh, Erev Yom Kippur, everybody goes. Erev Yom Kippur, everybody goes. Hasidim go constantly to the mikvah. But even those who don't usually go to the mikvah, Erev Yom Kippur, it says in Shulchanach to go to the mikvah. Everybody goes. The men, all the men and boys go to the mikvah. So it's very hard to find uh, the mikvah with nobody there. So this fellow, you know, he went with a towel close to the mikveh, at least to eclipse it as much as possible. Anyway, he slipped and the towel fell away and the image that he was so embarrassed of got revealed. And there was an elderly Jew there. And the elderly Jew lifted up his arm and he said, we all have pasts that are not simple. Some people have pasts that are not simple because of one reason, and some people have pasts that are not simple because of another reason. I also have a tattoo, different type of tattoo, different time. I did not choose it, but trust me, it was not simple. It's not simple carrying that tattoo. The most important thing in life is to learn how to open a new chapter in your life and turn the page. Turn the page. That's called lechreid. That's called connection. That's called empathy. He could have just said, okay, don't worry, don't be so self-conscious. Thank you. I'm also, I'm self-conscious. Don't be self-conscious. Right, the worst thing you could tell a self-conscious person is, don't be self-conscious. Why is everybody smiling? Don't be self-conscious. <laughs> it's the worst thing you could tell him. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, I also have a tattoo. Now, how can you argue with that? And how could you compare your tattoo that you did when you were drunk or high, 19 years old, 
to his tattoo in 1944 Auschwitz. Lechreid. So Moshe tells Hashem, why are you angry? <laughs> oh, I also didn't realize that I thought this calf could be very useful. Moshe wasn't making a joke. Moshe was telling the Rebbeinu Shalolam, I am with the Jewish people. He was one with the people. He fought for them. He understood them. He appreciated them. He loved them to the core. This continues our class from last week. You remember, if he would have thought with his mind, he should have not killed the Egyptian. And he could have become the next monarch and saved the nation. But if it's your child, Khalila, experiencing this bloodshed, you stop with long-term calculations. You save the boy. This was like his child, his blood, his own body. I am with them. And that brought out in God, God's relationship with the Jewish people that is unbreakable, that is essential, that's even deeper than their commitment to Torah. That relationship of Moshe brought out this same relationship that exists between the father and the child, between the shechina, between the mother and the child. So he says, why are you angry? Why are you going to let this anger destroy the relationship? And he accomplishes it. When Moshe Rabbeinu asks Hashem, Why are you doing this? The Medrash says, But how do we understand this emuna that causes the gula? What is the definition of emuna? When Moshe tells the Jewish, when Moshe tells God, They're not going to believe me. Before he came to Egypt, that they're not going to believe me. So the Gemara says in Shabbos, tractate Shabbos 97, Tzadik Zion, God said, you're wrong. Ma'aminim, b'nei ma'aminim. You may know it from the song. But the words come before the song. They are believers, the children of believers. What does it mean I'm a child of a believer? How does that help me? Your father votes Republican, it means you vote Republican. Usually you vote opposite of how your father votes. Your father's a lawyer, you become a rabbi. Your father's a rabbi, you become a doctor. Right? You have to do the opposite. My father's belief system automatically goes over to me. It's ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim. The answer, of course, is what's the definition of amuna? The Balatanya describes in Tanya chapter 18, 19, what is Amunah? Amunah doesn't mean like some people think, blind faith. I believe, why not? My my mother believed it, my grandmother believed it, the chicken soup was delicious, the knedlach were good, Bobby's latkes were the best in the world, the healthiest in the world, the least cholesterol in the world. They believe, I believe. I go with the flow. That's not what Amunah is. What if your grandmother sold you, uh, I don't know, a bowl of uh, spaghetti? In other religions, people also have grandmothers who believe. They believe very strongly. So if that's the basis of a person's faith, it's warm, it's cultural, but it doesn't make it true. Emunah is much deeper than that. Emunah is that the soul 
experiences God. The soul experiences the divine. What does this mean, the soul experiences the divine? We have five senses. With my eyes I can see, with my ears I can hear, with my nose I can smell, with my hands I can touch, with my mouth, with my taste buds I can taste. The soul has a sixth sense. And the sixth sense picks up transcendent divine reality. If my sixth sense is unplugged, I can experience the resonance of the divine. What is a munna? A munna is a skill, a faculty inherent in the soul that when cultivated allows you to experience ultimate reality. It's like the old anecdote. Did you hear that definition? It's an old anecdote that one with great... They say it about Pavarotti. It's an anecdote. Uh, I don't know how authentic it is. But Pavarotti is some great opera singer did a rendition of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It was magnificent, exquisite. He got a standing ovation. And then there was an Alta Bob, an Alta Yidin, an old Jewish lady. He says, Mr. Pavarotti, can I do my rendition of Psalm 23? Go ahead. She gets up. She had an accent. She couldn't really carry a tune. The diction and grammar were beyond horrendous. But she meant it. And as she's going through Tehillim Chav Gimel, the Lord is my shepherd, she starts crying and everybody else starts sobbing. She finishes, Pavarotti looks at her, he says, it's interesting. I did a perfect job. My psalm was exquisite. Nobody shed a tear. I got a standing ovation. You did a horrible job. You defied all the laws of music and communication. And everybody's crying. How do you explain this? She says, Mr. Pavarotti, you may know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. So Amun is that skill of the soul that when cultivated, it allows you to experience ultimate reality. It's not something that has to be created. It's inherent we have something called a genetic mutation. Ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim means that from the Avais, Avram, Mitzvah, and Yaakov, and the Imoy, Sari, Rivka, Rochaleya, their descendants, a soul, essentially experiences the reality of the divine, like my eyes see and experience that which I can physically see. Yes, I can close my eyes, I can plug my ears. Sometimes my sense of smell can be compromised. That's true. It has to be cultivated. It has to be opened. It never has to be created. And this skill is there by every single Jewish soul identically. From the greatest to the smallest. How much they're aware of it or experience it, this differs. can differ very dramatically. But just like we're all humans... This is an inheritance, it's an essential dimension, it's a property of the soul. Call it, the moon, it's the color of your soul. The soul is what, it sees God, it experiences God, it's part of it. That's the amuna that is essential, what's inside of me. But each person has a whole other dimension as well. And that's what you might call, your cognitive self, your emotional self, 
my thoughts, my emotions, my experiences of life, my faculties of reason, my faculties of scrutiny, my faculties of understanding, my need to make things make sense, my yearning for logic, for sequence, for rhythm, for harmony, on an intellectual level, on an emotional level. Much of our life is navigated by those yearnings, by those questions, our intellectual questions, our emotional questions, which sometimes translates in emotional pain. All pain is a question. What is pain? Pain means this doesn't make sense, this doesn't feel right. It's the emotional question. In logic, you ask the question, well, it doesn't make sense. How do emotions ask a question? When emotions want to ask a question, what do they say? I'm in pain. This doesn't sit well. This undermines me. This doesn't feel good. This, this, this challenges my sense of self, my sense of how life should be. Why am I in pain? This is how it's supposed to be. No, there's something wrong. My child is not speaking to me. My sister is not speaking to me. My friend is not speaking to me. I'm suffering from this challenge or that challenge. It's not how it's supposed to be. I'm not asking a logical question. I'm asking an emotional question. Pain is really a language. You understand what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying or you feel what I'm saying? (laughs) Okay, thank you. I had a student of mine, and he was doing outreach, and he said, you know, this was like 10 or 20 years ago, he says, people often ask me, including survivors, why did the Holocaust happen? Why did, why did God allow it? And he says, what am I supposed to answer them? And I, I told him, I said, I don't know, but I'm going to give you one piece of advice. Don't answer. <laughs> Whatever you answer, do not say, tell them why. He says, why not? I said, if you don't understand, you certainly shouldn't answer. But I'll tell you, why not? First of all, because you don't know. (laughs) That's number one. That's a pretty good reason. Second of all, even if you would know, they're not asking a mathematical question. They're asking a question that's coming from the core of their gut. This is not a why, like, oh, I read a scientific fact about the black hole. And how do you reconcile it with another law by Einstein? Okay, you may know the answer. You probably don't know the answer. This is not some abstract, philosophical, theological, mathematical question of logic and philosophy. This is a question from their etzim from their core. Why? How can this happen? And trust me, your intellectual answers, even if they're accurate, which they're probably not, will not answer their question. When somebody asked, somebody once told me, never answer the question, answer the person. And here you're not even answering the question. The question is not why. Oh, give me some interesting explanation. The question is a question that encompasses and envelops their entire entity and identity. I said, if you give them your shoulder and you give them a hug, you will probably answer their question far more accurately. Pain is also a question. Its language is a different language, but it's also a question. So here is 
where Moshe's question comes in. When it says, There is a Muna that is the inheritance of every single Jew at his or her core. Unchangeable, indestructible, undeniable, and immutable. Even a Jew who denies it. A Jew may call himself an atheist, and you have plenty of such Jews. That skill of the soul still exists, and I'll prove it to you. You will see that Jewish atheism is unique. As somebody once told me, Jews don't deny God. They deny God with religious fervor. And if you ever encounter Jewish atheists, you know what I'm talking about. They're, Jews are not atheists. Jews are religious. Sometimes their religion is manifested in atheism. But it's a religion for them. That's why it's extreme. That's why it's radical. That's why there's no left-wingers as left as Jews. That's why there's no liberals as liberal as Jews. Not that I'm accompanying the two. But these are certain elements. The radicalism comes from a place that is unique. They don't know how to not be religious. I once heard from Eli Wiesel, late Eli Wiesel, he said, Jews either love God or hate God. They don't know how to ignore God. And I would compare it to a marriage. When you're married to somebody, you can either love them or whatever. But you can't ignore them. (laughs) You can try, and I know that a lot of Jewish spouses try, good luck ignoring your wife. Good luck ignoring your husband. It's a sham. You can't ignore You can love or have a different emotion. Why not? Because you're part of me. Because we're connected. Like ignoring your mother, ignoring your father, ignoring your child. You could make believe, but there's a lot of pain there. And you're probably compensating that pain with some distraction. But we're not going off to addiction therapy now. So you're fine. You want me to? Do it on your own. So, these are relationships that are essential. Emunah is essential. But for the Jewish people to become the Jewish people, stage two has to happen. And that is that the Emunah doesn't just remain a property inside the soul, but that it permeates the individual in his or her totality. The Muna doesn't just what, doesn't remain what we call a pintalayid, some seminal atomic nuclear energy at the core of one's soul, but one that becomes holistic. One that I can breathe 24 hours a day, seven days a week. For that, my Amuna must penetrate my logic and my emotions, my day-to-day Language, the language with which I think, the language with which I speak, the language with which I feel, the language with which I act. So for Moshe Rabbeinu's mission to become successful, for Geula to happen, not just the emuna of Ma'aminim, B'nai Ma'aminim, Avram, Mitzik, and Yaakov gave every Jewish soul that genetic mutation, spiritual genetic mutation. Moshe has to take it to the next stage. 
And Moshe, just as he would do by the golden calf, comes to God and starts asking questions. How? This does not make sense. I thought you're good. I thought you want to redeem them. You're making it even worse. What's your name? How am I supposed to explain your name? What's his objective? Moshe didn't know about Amuna. Moshe had a good mother. And his stepmother also wasn't such a bad uh, rotten potato. Moshe had a good sister, Miriam. Moshe's father was Amram, God Hadar. Moshe was the greatest prophet. He needed a lecture about Amunah. Your great-grandmother, who used to sit and say till them Friday night and read Seno Arena, you remember? And read Seno Arena, or Sefer Hayasher, Friday night after Lichtsenden, before the Jewish magazines were published. Right? Your grandmother didn't have ten magazines on the, on the table over there that she can have sip with her latte that she picked up in Starbucks with almond milk. So she lit her candles, she lit the Tzeno Arena, knew not to ask Lomariya Yisalamaza. She had a Munapshuta. Moshe didn't. <laughs> Who taught the Jews a Muna? And if you're a prophet, you see it. Moshe was doing something extraordinary. Moshe at this moment was fusing, fusing the world of Amuna with the world of logic, with the world of emotions. To quote it as Svasemis, he says in this week's Parsha, the second Gary Rebbe, an expression. He says, Moshe asked Lama Harayosa, he says, Kach tzorich liyos, she Yehudi tzorich litmoya eich magia haraba oilam. He says, of course, a Jewish mind, a sane mind, a sensitive mind has to ask. If life is good, why is it bad? If God is good, why is this world such a toxic place? If the world was conceived in love, and if God is present in the world, why is there so much evil? Those are good questions. Those are powerful questions. Those are even sacred questions. Those are appropriate questions. Does a Jew still have a Muna? Of course a Jew has a Muna. And the two completely don't contradict each other. There's the world of a Muna. There's the world of Seichel. But here's the question. Do I have to shut down one world in order to experience another? So you learned yes. And today you're going to learn something new. <laughs> but thank you for the intro. That was very good. We planned it. Moshe wants that the oneness and the experience with the divine should not only be a superconscious, inspirational, transcendental, soulful, heavenly experience, but that it should be holistic. It should permeate the totality of the human being. I should not have to shut down any part of myself in my experience of the divine and my experience of Judaism. The relationship should be able to be complete. How would you define the best relationship in the world? And everybody knows one of the better answers for that is when every part of you can be shared in the relationship. No, I'm not discussing the question if a person should always share every single experience 
with their close people, there are different var- variables that have to be explored. I'm not giving a verdict about that at all. But if there's a very deep part of me that I can't share with my wife, or my wife can't share with me, a woman can't share, a wife can't share with a husband, a husband can't share with a wife. If there's a part that I have to amputate, this can't be part of the relationship. You know what happens. That part remains estranged. And that part also seeks a relationship. That part also wants to connect. It has to find other connections. And that takes away from the relationship. It can't not. And the deeper the secret is, the more the shame, the more that part needs connection. And the more that part needs connection, the more it seeks connection in other places. And the more it compromises the relationship. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if I would be speaking to men, I would have to give a two-hour lecture to explain this. You know that. But I think you understood. All of halacha, when halacha speaks about sneers and yichud and uh, protecting one's seed, people think often that these things are like repressive. God is trying to control people's lives. It's the exact opposite. If in your marriage you don't bring in your full relationship, the marriage will not be a powerful marriage. If there's parts of you that still belong in other places and other situations, it's not just you're a free person. You're not a free person. It means that there's a lack of trust. There's no real love. It's like maybe, maybe, maybe you, maybe not. It's like I put my eggs in many baskets. Now with money, that may not be a bad idea. But with your soul, if I'm putting my soul in many baskets, it means my soul is in no basket. Because a soul is holistic and a shum is one. So if I put my soul in many baskets, it means I belong nowhere. And because I belong nowhere, I belong everywhere. Which is what some people do. They want to belong everywhere. Because <laughs> they're not ready to belong nowhere. Because I can't trust anybody. So I have you and I have you and I have you. And when I'm in a bad mood, I have this woman. I'm in a good mood. And it's true on many different levels. A relationship means that the totality of my being could be present in the relationship. Moshe Rabbeinu understands very deeply that for the Judaism to become Judaism and for the Jewish people to become the Jewish people, to become the true liberated people, the relationship must be full, complete, wholesome. If I have to shut my mind, if I have to shut down my heart, in my relationship with God, there is a relationship. There's a very deep relationship. Ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim. I have the genes of Avram, Mitzak, Yaakov, Sarif, Karachaleya, whether I like it or not. I'm my tati's boy and my mommy's boy. I'm nochamazinik oich. I don't know if we get the better genes or the worst genes, but we come after all the experiments with the other children. Any mazinik's here? You're also Mazinik? Yeah. You know, during the oldest in the family, the youngest in the family, are very different. The oldest in the family carries the burden of the Gansa Mishpacha. They're like a second mommy. Of course. How would you know? But anyway. In any case, I'm a child. A child is a child. That relationship exists. But Moshe teaches us something much more profound. And that is, God wants to hear what's on your mind also. I don't have to repress my mind to be Jewish. 
I don't have to deny my questions. I don't have to amputate my pain, make believe it doesn't exist to be in a relationship with God. Emunah does not mean necessarily that I look at my life and I say, wow, God, you're awesome, and my life is rosy, perfect, flawless, impeccable. It can't get any better when I am really feeling pain. That too can and must be brought into the relationship. There are people, there are people who don't live in a conflict. Enoid Movadai, the Magad of Mizrich, had a student, had a Jew, came to him and said, how do you thank God for difficult challenges in life? He says, go to the Bzusha, go to the Rebbe Bzusha. He goes to the Bzusha, he stays there for three days. Rebzusha didn't have a morsel of bread in his home. He had a very difficult life. Rebzusha says, I'm happy to have you as a guest. Are you here for a reason? He says, yeah, the Magad came to learn from you how to thank God for a difficult life. He says, you must have misheard the name. He says, why? He said, Rebzusha says, he probably said another name. You got the wrong guy. I never had a bad day in my life. Why? Because for Zerbzusha, the definition of life was intimacy with God. So how can you have a bad day? There's one day where you don't have intimacy with God. How can you have a bad day? That was the definition of life. If that's the definition of life, we say about Avram Avinu. But Moshe Rabbeinu becoming the leader of the Jewish people, just like by the eagle, he's going to say, oh, they created a calf to help you. God will say, oh, you're just like them. Moshe says, but our minds have questions. I look at a story, I look at an event, I feel something, I see something, and I can't help but my mind saying, why, how? This is horrible. This is so painful. Does Amuna mean that doesn't exist? Or I should put a zipper on my lip and never address life from that level? Does it mean that? One may think it does. But at this moment, Moshe is creating an extraordinary paradigm when he asks all those questions. Very logical. Like, I'm looking at the world. This does not make sense. You told me you're going to send me to redeem them. Look at these Jews suffering. Why? Mashmoy, I need to understand your name. How am I supposed to represent? What am I supposed to represent? Hashem understood this very well. He tells Moshe Rabbeinu, Loikemoy Avraham, Now is a new stage. There was Avraham, Ha'avas, Heinein Hamer Kava. The Avas were a conduit for the divine. Their entire being was a channel for the divine. They don't have a bad day. But now it was a new Avaid. You want to allow every single Jew who on his or her own, in their own identity, has many questions and has many different emotions and is tormented sometimes by pain and by trauma especially people who have been through very difficult challenges in life and they look in the mirror or they turn to a friend or to God and they say, why did I have to go this through? Why did I have to go through this? What is this doing for me? Who is gaining from it? 
And all the explanations in the world ultimately don't comfort me. They don't add up because the pain is deeper than all of them. Because the language of pain is far deeper, as I said, than any other mathematical equation. Avram Avinu represents the Amuna that transcends all. It's immutable, it's unbreakable. Moshe, who is the epitome, not only of holiness, but of Chachma, of Kedusha, is creating the fusion, the unity that I can bring into my relationship with God. Every single emotion, every single question, every single experience, every single encounter, every single idea, God is not afraid of it. Judaism is not afraid of it. I can bring it in. I can present it. I can be with it. Infinity can contain my entire brain. Infinity can contain my entire heart. That is part of my relationship. It's not a contradiction to the relationship. Part of the relationship is... My mind is making these statements and sharing these voices. My mind is perturbed. My mind is tormented. My mind is in disarray. Part of my relationship is that my emotions are heavy, that I'm sobbing, that I'm wallowing in grief. That is part of my relationship right now and infinity can embrace it and contain it. And if I could stay with it, And I could look at it honestly and deeply and not run away from it. Something happens. From Elikim, there will be Yudke Vavke. Somehow, in an inexplicable way, you in your own way will find your God in your reality, in your pain, in your story, in your narrative, because God is there too. The Elikim becomes Yudkevavke. When he says, Chaval al da'abdin v'la meshtakchen, can be understood in two ways. One is, oh, the good old days when everything was beautiful. Or, there is a new reality and a new avoida beyond Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, the embodiments of Amuna. And that is one of fusion. That is one of connection. That is one of integration. Judaism was and will never be afraid of any intellectual question or any emotional question. Before he goes to redeem the Jewish people, Moshe says, I'm going to ask the biggest questions. All the big questions are right there in that Pasuk. What is your name? And why are you doing this? And God says, and now it's time to allow people to reveal the truth of their reality, the truth of their neshama, the truth of their amuna, in the totality of their life. In your mind and in your heart, with your full being, 
with your full being that can be introduced into the relationship. This creates a whole new type of amuna. And amuna that is not only in heaven, it's also on earth. It's not only in the core of my soul, it's also in my body. It's not only at moments of inspiration, but it infuses all elements of my mind and my heart. It infuses my voices and my conversations, my higher moments and my lower moments. God says, I'm not afraid of people's questions. I'm not afraid of people's emotions. Honesty is more important than anything. A full, real, holistic, authentic relationship. Don't worry if it's real. Tough language will not destroy it. Our relationship is stronger than a difficult conversation. If you're really close to me, you could tell me everything. If you're afraid that I'm going to abandon you, you can tell me very little. You have to tell me, good morning, I love you. You look so good. You're awesome. I'm crazy about you. When can you look me in the eyes and say, you know, I'm having such a hard time with you. I'm having such a hard time with you. You are triggering in me such difficult emotions. The way I'm feeling now is that I wish I would have never known you. There's only one type of person I could say that to. Who? Someone with a trust is beyond any calculation in the world. Where I know that a bad mood or a difficult day or a challenging situation will not cause them to look at me and say, I feel exactly the same about you. Bye-bye! Then we don't do it. In orphanages, in orphanages, in homes where they raise, what is it called? Uh, foster homes. I don't think you'll ever hear a child. A foster home nurse once told me. She said in a foster home, there was somebody in my home and one of the kids said, Patty, I hate you. So obviously I didn't like hearing that. So somebody from a foster home said, it's a compliment. It's really, my compliments. This is a compliment. He said, in a foster home, I never ever heard a child tell anyone, I hate you. You know why? Because they know it could be reciprocal. I hate you too. Why don't we just sever our bonds? There's so much anxiety and insecurity. I can't go there. Your child can tell this to you. It's a blessing. They know they're still getting dinner. (laughs) They still have a bed to sleep in. They could still play with their Lego. And you're going to still give them the ice cream after supper, the vanilla. You'll even take them out for pizza. And your heart is going to melt with the ice cream. No, I'm not saying it's the most pleasant thing to hear from your child. I hate you, especially when they get a little older. But the point was a very profound point. Real amuna is amuna that is not threatened by anything. Questions don't make it weaker. Answers don't make it stronger. It's an essential relationship, and it could include 
everything. The oneness can encompass the totality of my life, the totality of my experience. When God speaks to Moshe after Lama Hareyosa, he says, Ani Hashem. I'm now going to introduce the Shem HaEtzem, Yudke Vovke. A new revelation in the life of Moshe and in the life of the Jewish people where their relationship with oneness will become their own, not just an inheritance from the spiritual giants of their forefathers and foremothers, but it becomes their own. It has the capacity to permeate them, to penetrate them, to penetrate them fully infusing the totality of the Jew with the infinite relationship and oneness with Hashem. Have a wonderful week. Oh, next week, <clears throat> next week I'm away, I'm in the West Coast, so there's no class next Tuesday. We're going to resume. Next Tuesday there's no class. Please tell your friends or relatives who come. The next Tuesday we will resume Be'ezer Hashem. So next Tuesday you have a winter break. Your kids had a break last week or this week. Now you have a break. Yeah. The Sfasemus? Sfasemus I quoted is from Parshas Ve'eda Tafshe Shlamates. I have it here. These are his words. Amiras Meaning Moshe's protest Hashem, why did you afflict the Jewish people? Are certainly words of truth. Because this indeed has to be a question by a person. How and why is there evil in the world? And then he has to infuse himself with a mun and faith in the Creator. This means that for Moshe Rabbeinu to be able to bring the Jewish people to the ultimate holistic and wholesome amuna, part of his mission, part of his shlichus was to raise this question of all questions. How are we to reconcile the deep amuna in the soul of every Jew? The love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the meaning and purpose in every moment, the oneness that exists in the world, the goodness and the love at the core of the world. How am I to reconcile this with what my eyes often see, with what my mind understands and with what my heart feels? This is the question that Moshe raises. And this question triggers and arouses the response of Hashem. Vayidaber elikim el Moshe. Elikim speaks to Moshe. Elikim is the attribute of concealment. Elikim is the numerical value of nature. Hateva 86. Elikim represents the tzimtzum, the concealment of God in this world. Elikim speaks to Moshe because he is addressing a question from a place of doubt and conflict and concealment. But what does Hashem tell Moshe? I have appeared to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And that ability to be able to see God as an inheritance to every single Jew, as a child of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. The soul of a Jew experiences Va'era. God is as real as something as you see, that you see with your own eyes. Because the soul is a chelek eloika mimal mamish. So godliness is something as real as what you see with your eyes. But the Chiddush here is, that the Amunah doesn't remain transcendent and aloof and detached from my day-to-day reality. The Amunah rather infuses the totality of my experience. Even in that space where I have doubt and conflict and struggle and pain and there is ambivalence and there is uncertainty and there is the conflict between faith and reason. 
that the emunah could permeate the totality of the person, even that place of hero. I don't have to cut out and deny and repress what I'm feeling or what I'm not understanding. The infinity and the truth of the soul's connection with God could contain everything, can embrace everything. It can encompass the totality of my experience. I can be present in this relationship with the totality of myself. My emune could carry and permeate and penetrate everything. I don't have to deny any part of me. The emune is at the core of everything. And I don't have to run away from my mind. I don't have to run away from my heart. And what is more, if I could stay with that, from those experiences, from that reality, I will be able to ultimately touch God. I will be able to ultimately touch my emunah. So yes, there's an element of alikim. There's an element of chaval al-da'abdim v'lamishtakhim. There is the pain of uncertainty. There is the conflict, the ambivalence of the torment of Golos. And here comes the va'era, the ability to be able to infuse emuna in the totality of your being. And it's the question of Moshe Rabbeinu on behalf of the Jewish people that brings out this response, this unprecedented revolution of the ultimate emuna of the Jewish people. Yeah. Oh, so why was Moshe punished? It's a good question. Rashi says, Atatira, now you're going to see, but you're not going to go and tell it to show why is he punished? <laughs> It's a wonderful question. The answer for this is you have to understand that the punishments in Chumash are not vengeful. It's not like God says, oh, Moshe, you said the wrong thing. That's it. I'm taking away your reward. You're not going into Eretz Yisrael. That's not the way to understand it. In fact, there's an expression of the Svasemis in Parshas Ve'era, Tafri Shlam Edvav. Svasemis says, This is not a penalty and a punishment. God says, oh, you said the wrong thing. I'm angry at you. You're not going into Israel. I'm denying your, your, your privileges. I'm taking away your privileges. No, this is part of the essential plan and mechanism of how history is developing. Because the way I understand it is if Moshe goes into Israel, it says in the, it says in Svarim, the Chazal say, if Moshe would go into Israel, there would be no destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. Moshe is the face of the sun, Yeshua is the face of the moon. If Moshe goes into Eretz you have what's called the Tikkun HaGomer. There's no toxicity, there's no negativity. The fusion, the synthesis between Moshe and Eretz creates an explosion of holiness. But since the whole purpose of Lama Harayos of Moshe Rabbeinu is to allow the Amuna to infuse and permeate and penetrate the human condition the way it is, this must give room for human mistake, for human error, for human trials and tribulations, for human failure, for the ability for me to feel detached and reinvent and find my connection from within the depth of my own heart, of my own mind. And therefore, Moshe can go into Israel. Moshe's entry into Israel creates an explosion of holiness, va'era. But here, the point of the va'era is to permeate the hearer, to permeate the lama hariyosa for this, there has to be room for human growth, which means for human failure. Yeah. The oneness? Yeah. So that's the Medrash. Moshe Rabbeinu, it does, that's the point. Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't necessarily experiencing the doubt himself. But Moshe Rabbeinu was one with the Jewish people. He represents the Jewish people. Moshe wants that every single Jew, no matter who he or she is, should be able to internalize their amuna, that their amuna should become part of who you are 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
so that your mind becomes a conduit for Amunah. Your heart becomes a conduit for Amunah. There's a fascinating Gemara. The Gemara says in Yerushalmi, Hoirius Perig Gimel, Halacha Hey. Extraordinary teaching. Rabbi Yochanan says that for 40 days Moshe was on Har Sinai. He learned the whole Torah from Hashem and he forgot it. At the end, Hashem gave it to him as a gift. Asks Rabbi Yochanan, why? Why did this happen? And you know what the answer is? To be able to create hope for the fools. Meaning, Moshe Rabbeinu knew that down the road in history, there will be a Jew who will come to a shir, will come to a class, will come to a lecture, will open up a sefer, and will learn it and forget it, and learn it again and forget it again, and learn it again and again and again and again and forget it again. And what's going to happen? He or she will become demoralized, will become depressed. You'll give up on yourself. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, look at me. For 40 days I sat at the feet of the greatest teacher in history. You know who? The creator of the world, the Rebbeinu Shalom himself. And you know what happened? I forgot it. But I didn't run away. I remained, I learned it again and again and again until I got it as a gift. So you see what Moshe Rabbeinu was doing? Moshe who, there actually has an expression in Parshas Chukas. Moshe who Yisrael, Yisrael hey Moshe, ki hanasi hu akal. I'll put this all in the source sheets on the yeshiva.net. On the video on the yeshiva.net, you'll have the source sheets. I'm going to put bleeding under all of these sources that I said so you could see it all inside. Yeah, thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.